0: Let us pray. Holy Spirit, your people call out for understanding. Bring to our yearning hearts and minds the truth of your word. Amen. So we have finished the first chapter of the Gospel of Mark, which is a blur of action. Jesus is baptized by John, driven into the wilderness to be tempted preaches his first sermon, and calls the disciples. He goes to the synagogue on the Sabbath where he casts out an unclean spirit. Then he goes to Peter's house for lunch, but not before healing Peter's mother-in-law. More healings on the Sabbath, after the Sabbath ends, and then a little alone time in prayer before the disciples hunt him down. Now off to the surrounding towns and villages in Galilee to continue to preach the good news. And all along the way, He is pushing people's buttons right now mostly scribes and Pharisees religious types by healing on the Sabbath and touching the unclean but just wait it'll get worse today Jesus has returned home to Capernaum from his preaching tour and he keeps right on pushing people's buttons taking risk for the sake of the kingdom of God The risky theme that runs throughout today's readings concerns sin, forgiveness, and healing, and the relationship between or among the three of them. We start with a physical healing and then consider other less visible forms of healing and how sin and forgiveness are involved. As I told the children, we get to start with one of my favorite stories in all the Gospels.
1: Marks uh, 2, 1 through 4. When he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. So many gathered around that there was no longer room for them, not even in front of the door. And he was speaking the word to them. Then some people came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. And when they could not bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And after having dug through it, they let down the mat on which the paralytic lay.
0: Now, I bet this is one of your favorite stories, too. Every one of us, I bet, had it in vacation Bible school at some point, didn't we? It's so vivid in its description, and yet there's not a wasted word. You know, can't you see that house full to bursting, crowded with people? It's hot, and everybody is straining to hear everything Jesus says as he speaks God's word to them. Again, Mark doesn't tell us what the sermon is. You know that it's like nothing they've ever heard before. More than his teaching, though, Jesus is becoming known for his healing. So here come four men carrying a litter bearing a paralyzed man, and they can't get in the door because of the crowd. Have you ever wondered about that? Dustin's face painted that picture, didn't it? I mean, the crowd knows Jesus heals, and here's this man who obviously needs healing. Even if they have no compassion for this poor man, they should at least be curious to see how Jesus heals him. That's what they've come to see. But they don't make a way for him and his friends. Makes me wonder about us. I mean, what barriers do we, consciously or unconsciously, put in the way of people reaching Jesus? Up here on the board is a picture of my home church in Houston, one when I was a layperson in the pews. It was built in the 1930s, and it is modeled on European Gothic cathedrals. Can you tell? It's pretty grand. And some rich and important people have gone to church there, My parents had stopped attending church regularly when I was a member there, and I kept inviting them to join me. But my mother would not. She insisted that she had nothing nice enough to wear to go be with all those rich folk. I never could convince her that there were all kinds of people there, people like her and her daughter. And believe me, I didn't dress any better then than I do now. I could never convince her To come. The grandeur of the edifice was a barrier for her that I never could overcome. Our vision says that we want to build relationships in an ever-changing world that lasts for eternity. It is worth having a conversation about what we might be doing to stand in the way, intentionally or unintentionally, of folks trying to reach Jesus.
1: Again in Mark, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning their hearts. Why does this fellow speak in this way? It is blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? At once Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were discussing these questions among themselves. And he said to them, Why do you raise these questions in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven? or to say, Stand up, take your mat, and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Stand up, take your mat, and go to your home. And he stood up and immediately took the mat and went went out before all of them, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We have never seen anything like this.
0: So these friends trust that Jesus can help this man so much so that they literally dig through the roof to get to him. Now, sin and illness in Jesus' day were directly correlated. In other words, if you were sick, that must mean you had sinned and God was punishing you. In this man's case, in their understanding, his sins had literally paralyzed him. And truth be told, there can be a relationship between sin and illness, though perhaps not always like we think there is. Karen Black is a preaching professor, and she shares her story in a sermon. Girl Scout troops and brownie troops from all over town gathered every summer for camp at this lake. We took swimming lessons and got our swimming badges. Little did we know that the lake we swam in collected the runoff from a toxic waste dump. My own disability that was a result of this toxic exposure manifests itself in what I call spells, which means I lose all muscle tone and basically become paralyzed. I can hear and feel, but I can't move. I can't open my eyes or speak. Recently, I had a spell in a grocery store. And there I was, sitting in a puddle of milk, unable to move, and fearful that I would fall over and hit my head on the floor. And I heard two women talking. One said to the other, there but for the grace of God go I. Okay, what kind of person doesn't at least check on the person sitting in the puddle of milk in the middle of the grocery store? Or. Go find help from someone else. Was the assumption that this woman was so drunk or high that she had literally collapsed in the aisle? Can you see how the two women talking made the same assumption that people in Jesus' day made about who caused this woman's problems? Namely, her. But Jesus on seeing the determination of their friends and their faith, says something expected. I mean, we'd all be like Dustin. We would expect him to say, get up and walk. Instead, he tells the paralyzed man that his sins are forgiven. And you know what happens? Nothing. At least not to the paralyzed man. He's still on his mat, unable to walk. Jesus does a couple of remarkable things in this encounter, things that we need to hear over and over because we forget. First, he uncouples the connection between sin and illness. Okay, some illnesses, like Kathy Black's, are related to sin, our own or someone else's, but not all. And trying to figure out who sinned, this man or his parents, to paraphrase the Gospel of John is not helpful to the sick person, to this paralyzed man in particular. And I, I, have, I have her permission to do this. Loretta, would you stand up and walk for us? Just a little bit down the aisle here. You notice she's limping, right? Why are you limping, Loretta? I'm going to have knee repeat. Next week, right? She, her knee is going to be replaced next week. I know some of you have had knee replacements. You know what she feels like right now. But last week, she was here, and for communion, we said those words that we say every month. Your sins are forgiven. You tell me my sins were forgiven. We say glory to God. Loretta is forgiven. And her knee still hurts. Am I right? You can be forgiven of your sins and need physical healing. We do all kinds of harm when we forget that. A woman was going in for a biopsy for breast cancer, and her church family came, and they gathered around her. They laid hands on her. They prayed for her. They anointed her with healing oil, and they went off confident that the biopsy would come back so clear, and it didn't. It came back that she had cancer and those good church-going folks have the audacity to say that her faith must have been weak because god had not healed her the woman doubted her faith and her faith community doubted her which probably didn't help in her fight with cancer the second important thing jesus does is to see beyond the man's physical needs and into his soul I'm sure I've told you this story before, but some of you are new, and it's my favorite one, so you get to hear it again. Tony Campolo is an internationally known evangelist who's invited to speak at many places, and he had been invited to come to this church and deliver this sermon one uh, Sunday night, And he was told that their tradition on this particular Sunday was to offer healing prayers to anyone who wanted healing after the service. Would he like to participate? And he said, sure. It wasn't necessarily something he felt was his spiritual gift, but he would be glad to to sit with people, pray with them for healing. And this one man had come up, and, and he spent quite a bit of time with every person. This man had advanced cancer. He prayed with him. His wife was with him. And about two or three weeks after this service he got a call in his office from the woman whose husband he would prayed with. And he, he, he took the call and she said, do you remember? And she told him about her husband. He said, "Oh, of course I remember him. How is he? She said, well, he died. And he said, well, there went my career as a healer. But she went on and said, He was so angry at having this disease, at knowing he was dying. He was angry with God, he was angry at the world, and he took it out on his family. Everyone, he'd driven everyone away. I was only there because I didn't have any other place to go. But after you guys prayed, something happened. Something changed in him. The anger was gone. And instead, there was a peace. Those last two weeks of his life were the best two weeks of our marriage. And I called to say thank you. In this man's case, God gave him the healing he truly needed, a soul healing that restored his relationship with the people who mattered most to him. Can you imagine what the paralyzed man must have thought of himself after being told for who knows how long that something he had done, some sin of his, had caused his suffering? And with those words, Jesus freed him from that burden. We need to remember that God is on our side and that the healing that we personally think may be the most important is not necessarily the one God thinks is the most important. In other words, we have to trust that God is working for us and not against us. Now, predictably, Jesus' words don't sit well with the religious folk in this house. What he said is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Which means that this is their domain, since they are God's earthly agents. The priest in the temple conveyed God's forgiveness after the right offerings had been made. Certainly not this Galilean upstart preacher. One commentary on this passage asks, Would the Pharisees have had as much trouble with Jesus if he had only healed the physical affliction and not the spiritual? Now, of course, you and I know that the Pharisees are actually absolutely correct. Only God can forgive sins. And when you have seen Jesus, you have seen the Father. Jesus and the Father are one. Hence, Jesus can forgive sins. As another writer said, what is important is that in Jesus' presence, both sin and illness are rendered powerless. Now, this is risky business. You know, so far the crowds are on Jesus' side. His teaching is new and has an authority they have never before experienced. The healings amaze them and draw people from all around. But Jesus keeps poking that stick in the eye of the religious leaders. And they have used their permission. They've used their power and their position to draw these rigid boundaries to to define who is in and who is out. They don't like that Jesus is defying that authority. And now he's about to kick those boundaries they've set up down, which is also going to test the loyalty of the crowds.
1: Jesus went out again beside the lake. The whole crowd gathered around him, and he taught them. As he was walking along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he got up and followed him. And as he sat at dinner in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were also sitting with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard this, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. I have come not to call on the righteous, but sinners.
0: So just a reminder of why tax collectors are so hated that they're their own special kind of sinner in Jesus' day. Remember, this area, Palestine, is under occupation by Rome. And Rome has recruited collaborators from amongst the Jewish people to be the, the, their uh, boots on the ground and to collect taxes. Now, what the Romans say to the tax collector is every quarter or every month, whatever they decide, you owe us X amount of money. Whatever you can collect above that is yours to keep. Now, you think that sounds terrible. We have lots of people who work on commission. Whatever they sell, they make money off of. This is kind of the same principle. The prices increase uh, the price is increased so that they have a living. This is often their only source of income. But like any system, it is ripe for abuse, and tax collectors got rich from the extortion of the people. Moreover, they were collaborators. They were viewed as traitors cooperating with the hated occupation so the thought that jesus calls a tax collector to be one of his disciples is beyond scandalous think of the level of uproar that colin kaepernick engenders with his protests so much that i don't even have to explain what he did or why he's so controversial you know jesus doesn't just forgive sins which is already blasphemous, he identifies with sinners and chooses one of the most blatant, obvious ones to be his disciple. And this is risky because now even those crowds that have been so amazed may start looking at Jesus and wondering about him. And then Jesus compounds this risky behavior by going to dinner at Levi's, who's also known as Matthew, to his house. Now, there's no surprise that the scribes and Pharisees take notice and get upset, and they complain to the disciples. Again, it centers around who is clean and unclean. Tax collectors were unclean. They were not even allowed to attend the synagogue. And yet, here they are, eating with the hot new rabbi. Now, this is almost like parking lot conversations. You know those unofficial meetings that occur after the meeting ends? But you can't get anything by Jesus. He tells them, those who are well don't need a doctor, but those who are sick, I've come not to call the righteous to repentance, but the sinners. You know, on the surface, this should have made the Pharisees feel better, because obviously they're righteous. They don't need a doctor, but I seriously doubt that it did. See, these religious leaders think they have all the answers, that they are God's gatekeepers. They're defining who is clean and who is not. They can point to the Torah, to the law, and find justification for their rules. They can draw on their understanding of the prophets and believe that god has punished them in the past with this defeat and exile because they did not adhere faithfully to the law and they still can totally miss the point isaiah
1: why do we fast but you do not see why humble ourselves but you do not notice look you serve your own interest on your fast day and oppress all your workers. Look, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to strike with a wicked fist. Such fasting as you do today will not make your voice heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose a day to humble oneself? Is it to bow down the head like a bulrush and to lie in sackcloth and ashes? Will you call this a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke?
0: As Jesus will later say, the two great commandments are to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. All the law hangs on those two commandments. But the Pharisees have made it about everything else but love. And they are the arbiters of what is acceptable or not. Jesus risks their enmity by kicking down the barriers that they have erected to God. Jesus shows that God reaches out to us, doesn't wait for us to reach out to God. And in Jesus, God loses the bonds of injustice, breaks the yoke, and sets the oppressed free. And does it in the simplest ways like sitting at the same table and eating with them. And when I say before communion that the table belongs to God and all whom God invites, which is everyone, I'm just doing what Jesus did when he sat at Levi's table. Christians can still act like Pharisees and try to decide for God who can be part of God's kingdom and who isn't. I got two short examples from my time in England. Up the hill from the church that I served was a Brethren Church. If you don't know who the Brethren are, they are our spiritual forefathers. They were the pilgrims. And a woman had started attending the Brethren Church. And it came the Sunday when they were going to have communion. And she was told that she had to leave because she was not a Brethren and could not share in communion with them. And couldn't even just sit in the pew. She had to leave. So she did. She came down the hill to our church, and we served her communion. I got a phone call one night from a man, never heard from him before, who wanted to tell me that he had proposed to his girlfriend and they wanted to get married. I said, that sounds lovely. And he said, would you be able to marry us? I said, sure. If that's your desire, you have to come for me, to me. We'll have to have some counseling sessions, all that. He said, that, that's fine. And he says, but I have to tell you something. I said, okay. He says, both of us have been divorced. I said, oh, we're Methodists. We don't care about that. <laughs> the Anglicans, you see, did. You could not be remarried in the church if you had been divorced in the Anglican church, perhaps to this day. And he said, he pulled the... Uh, phone away from his ear, and he said, Honey, honey, she says we can get married there! (laughs) He was so excited, so happy. She had several children from a previous marriage. I think to this day they are one of the strongest families in that church. Because I said yes. I bet you can think of some examples closer to home. Notice the connection between sin, forgiveness, and health again. This is what the old spiritual, there is a balm in Gilead, describes as the sin sick soul. But Jesus doesn't preach hellfire and brimstone to the tax collectors. He shows them that they matter, that God cares about them, that the kingdom of God has drawn near to them too, not just to the righteous telling them that they have a place in God's kingdom as well. So I woke up on Wednesday morning from a dream about this sermon, and one of the ways that our culture is sin-sick, when you meet someone, Lori, come over here. Uh, when you meet someone, what do you do? I go up and say, yeah. hi, I'm Allison. Hi, nice to meet you. I'm Lori. What do you do, Lori?
1: Everything.
0: No, isn't that the first thing we do after we say hi and get their name? And say, so what do you do? Democratic presidential candidate Andrew Yang has made this point about his wife, who is a full-time mother to their autistic child. He says, as far as society is concerned, her work is literally valueless, implying that her worth is less than someone who gets a paycheck people on learning that she doesn't work who had gone up to her and said, hi, what do you do? And she says, I'm a full-time mom. Dismiss her almost immediately and move on to someone more interesting who could potentially help them in some way. We have this preoccupation that you are not worth something unless you are doing something. There's a man who had been diagnosed with ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. It will rapidly rob you of motion and eventually life. And he had gotten to the point where he was unable to function. He was in a wheelchair. He could still talk, but he had waited too long to put into effect the plan he had had to commit suicide before he was helpless. So he asked his wife to do it, to help him die because he was worth nothing now. And she said, I don't know why you have this disease, I don't know what God has planned for you, but I am not going to help you kill yourself. I am not going to take the life God gave you. Made him furious, but he literally was powerless to do anything about it. He didn't live much longer and every day he grew weaker, less and less able to do anything. Shortly before his death, he had a heart-to-heart conversation with his wife and said, I'm so glad that you did not listen to me because these last weeks and months, I've learned to be, to understand that I don't have to do anything, to be worthy of God's love, to be a child of God, to enjoy the sunsets, to love you. And that's the most important thing of all. That's our sin sickness, this focusing, doing all the time. And I'm as guilty of it as the next one. The Pharisees missed the irony in Jesus' answer. They thought they were the righteous who didn't need a doctor. But they were as much a sinner as the tax collectors. And that goes for us, too. And I see the church not as a sanctuary for saints, but as a hospital for sinners, even those who may not realize that Jesus was talking to them.
1: Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why did John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, The wedding guests cannot fast while the bridegroom is with them, can they? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast on that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old cloak. Otherwise, the patch pulls away from it, the new from the old, and the worst tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost. And so are the skins. But one puts new wine into fresh wineskins
0: the kingdom of god drew near in jesus but it is not yet complete the world is still not so nice and neat as we pray it will be we keep praying that god's will be done on earth as it is in heaven but jesus is still present with us in the holy spirit and god is at work in our world creating and doing new things these new things are often So uh, just continuations of what Jesus is doing in these passages we've read today. Healing our deepest wounds. Showing us the fast that God chooses and how to practice it. Kicking down the barriers that have been erected that try to control access to God's grace. We are drinking from the new wineskin, wearing the new cloak, and it's just as risky today as it was for Jesus. Sometimes it gets messy when we want it to all be simple and neat. But that doesn't mean we can stop trying, that we don't practice the fast that God desires, to loose the bonds and set people free from what oppresses them. I invited us to think about healing, sin, and forgiveness and how they are related. Remember, you can be well and a sinner or sick and forgiven. Don't worry about whose sin, if anyone's, caused an illness. Focus on the person. Show them that they matter, just like Jesus did. Forgiveness can be a powerful healer of whatever sin sickness ails us. And everyone, even the righteous, need that healing. So let's be a hospital for sinners that reveals the saints within. Amen.